ora and welcome to the special episode of NZSA Live. The following content was recorded at our National Writers Forum in September 2018. We're releasing it during our 18 days of forum content to help New Zealand writers and authors through the national COVID-19 lockdown. Today's podcast features Dr. Anita Heiss, keynote address. Anita is the author of nonfiction, historical fiction, commercial women's fiction, poetry, social commentary, and travel articles. She is a regular guest at writers' festivals and travels internationally, performing her work and lecturing on Aboriginal literature. New Zealand Society of Authors, Good morning, my name is Anita Heiss. I'm a Wiradjuri woman. I have Wiradjuri belonging from Kaura and Brungle. I'm my mob of the Williamses, that's how we identify ourselves. So I see another black fellow, I say I'm a Williams from Carol Brungle, and that's how we identify family. I live on the land of the Yuggera people in South Brisbane, and I pay my respects to, and I'm hoping I say this correctly, the, the Nati Fatua Ki Orakai people. Um, and I thank the Society of um, Authors for welcoming me here. And I'm really pleased, in language it breaks down to, I'm pleased to be here for the purpose of speaking. Now, I'm really excited to be here because I'm a former chair of the Australian Society of Authors, um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about my writing journey. It's slightly different. I hope what I say feeds into and complements what Lani has spoken about this morning. The biggest tip I'm going to give you straight up is to join, if you're not already a member, the New Zealand Society of Authors and also any other professional writing organisation. Um, because when I joined back in 1996, it represented for me... I think the main step in terms of me becoming a professional writer and finding a way and paving a way in the Australian literary landscape. I also joined local uh, writers, my local writer centre at the same time and it was through these organisations that I met some of Australia's top authors who became really good friends of mine but also mentored me on my first uh, writing projects. People like Libby Gleeson, you might know some of these names, Dale and Lynn Spender and the late Rosie Scott who was from New Zealand, was a very dear, dear friend of mine and Deb and Georgia Blaine. And it was through these uh, memberships that I became, I became knowledgeable about the industry. And I think it's really important to know about how the industry works and an industry that you will eventually want support from. Now, back in the 90s, I had no idea that I would one day be travelling around the world um, talking about my books and writing. I never imagined that um, I was going to be a writer as a child. I didn't come from a home with books. I was a tomboy. I played cricket and football and tennis in the street. My parents didn't read. My mother was born on a little Aboriginal mission. My father came from a little village in Austria and English was his second language and um, he never read either. Um, I did leave school at 12, I mean go to high school. I had a reading age of 16 but I wasn't, I wasn't a reader. I never dreamed about being an author. That was never ever on my radar. I had bigger dreams. Does anybody, does anybody know who that is? G Ginger from Gilligan's Island? I wanted to be Ginger from Gilligan's Island. 
but I was more like Marianne. I had plaits and I was a tomboy, but I wanted to be Ginger because she was so gorgeous and glamorous. At one point, I wanted to be an air hostess, and at another point, I wanted to be a nun. Because um, I was. <laughs> Ladies, I could be a nun now. But um, I, was, I wanted to be a nun because I went to a Catholic school and loved the convent, and I go, I had my own room, and I was one of five, but then I realised I couldn't have jewellery and makeup or a boyfriend. So, uh, yeah, so that changed in my teenage years. Um, I went to university and what opened up for me was my mind and the possibilities of what I could do and what I should be uh, and the difference I could make as a young Aboriginal woman with a support network that guaranteed that I could be and do anything I wanted except perhaps be Ginger from Gilligan's Island. In 1996, I released a book called Sacred Cows and I, it, I thought I was just going to do this one book. And it was based on, it was really my reaction to every single book I got off the shelf at the University of New South Wales in my honours year when I was studying the 1967 referendum, which gave Aboriginal people our rights in our own country to be citizens. So my mother didn't have the right to vote till she was 29. So she wasn't counted on the census till she was 29, unlike my father, who was Austrian born and wasn't a resident. Heads of cattle were counted in Australia, but Aboriginal people weren't. So I, wanted, I went to university, I want to understand the psychology of a nation that thought that was okay. So most of the books I got off the shelf about anything to do with Aboriginal Australia was written, about, written by a non-Aboriginal person. And some of those books were written by people who'd never been to Australia. And I'm sure the same things happened here. So I got a book off the shelf one day, uniquely titled Australian Aborigines, written by someone in, UK, in, in Britain, and it was based on letters and journal articles. And there was a guy in New South Wales who would write, today we did this with the natives and today we did that, and he'd send the letter off. One day, five Aboriginal men took this fella hunting and they left him for a short period of time and only four came back. So he assumed they ate the fifth one. <laughs> As you would. <laughs> now, you know what sustains us? Laughing at white people's stupidity. <laughs> so... You all go out for morning tea and a couple don't come back. Lani and I aren't going to think you chowed down on the other people. <laughs> or we might. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm horrified, horrified that he writes this letter because what has happened, he writes this letter back to Britain saying Aboriginal people are cannibals, which has never been part of our culture. Aboriginal, based on this one moment in time, he writes this book that essentially becomes a history book about Australia. I get the book off the shelf 100 years later, hearing for the first time about cannibalism. It came up again, we have this politician called Pauline Hanson. <laughs> Do you know her? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's another conference. Anyway, <laughs> so I didn't hear it again until 96 when she came into power, and apparently our women ate our babies, but anywho. Um, so I realised, I had my big epiphany in, in the library of UNSW, and I, I realised two things. The first thing was that history is subjective. Maybe people in the room that argue with me about that, but I have the microphone. History is subjective. <laughs> and the way in which the colonisers remember and record history is significantly different to the way in which the colonised remember and record history. And if we came back here tomorrow and we asked you to record the, this morning's session, your history, I guarantee you every single one of, in this, of you in this room will record it differently. And Lani and I would record it differently because we were speaking. You know, facts you can't change. We're in this theatre. We're in an institution that names, it's named after an appliance. It's interesting, appliance. <laughs> it's, what day is it? 
Saturday, it's X temperature, there's 150 people in the room, facts you can't change. But how you remember the facts is what makes it subjective. I didn't know that 22 years later and 17 books later I'd be travelling talking about my books and writing. Uh, I, I, um, it turns out I created, I turned myself into an author determined to write Aboriginal women in particular um, and children into the Australian literary landscape. My most recent novels, Titters, is a, an Aboriginal word we use for sisters and, you know, BFF, your, your best friend or your uh, female, females in your life. Um, it's about five women and the challenges of friendship over a lifetime. The novel revolves around a book club in Brisbane because that allowed me every month to weave in some fantastic literature. Um, and it covers themes of reconciliation, identity, black deaths in custody, self-esteem, motherhood, sisterhood and all of life's issues in between. Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms is the story of a young woman called Mary uh, Williams. She's living on the mission where my mother grew up and where my mother was alive on the night of the Cowra breakout. Some of you will know World War II. We had a massive breakout Japanese uh, POW camp in, in Cowra. What the written history about in Australia about that war doesn't say that is 4.5 miles from that prisoner of war camp was another camp where my mother was born living under an act of protection, living on rations and with less rights than prisoners of war. So I wanted to write us into that landscape where our, and men from that town, Aboriginal men from that town, went to war. So um, I wanted to write us into military history as well. I also want to produce resources that inspire Aboriginal children um, by seeing themselves, to, inspiring them to read by seeing themselves on the page. It's not rocket science, brown kids need to see brown kids on the page. By the same token, I want all Australian students to access stories to help them understand who we are as First Nations peoples in the 21st century. And these writing projects, these kind of writing projects, are me living to write my purpose for writing. And if you're coming to my workshop tomorrow, the first thing I'm going to ask you is what is your purpose? Whether you're writing a poem or a song or a play, what is your purpose? My purpose as an author is to make social change through literature. But is it possible to write with purpose and make a living? Well, we, do, we call them love jobs, so I do a lot of love jobs. Love jobs doesn't pay the rent, though. So um, many of my books have made bestseller lists and look, numbers are different in different countries. You have a population of about 4 million, we have 30 million, so obviously things change by population. Um, I'm going to look at some sales figures later, but advances and royalties are not my key income. I earn a good living from using my books as springboards to speaking at conferences, forums, festivals and tertiary institutions in Australia and abroad. So looking, if I go down that list, um, I do teacher development. We're really lucky in Australia in some instances. We have a national curriculum and three, there are three strands and one of those strands is Indigenous perspectives and teachers have to embed Indigenous perspectives into nearly every subject. So uh, I do lots of PD with teachers and helping them to find ways to bring Indigenous voices into the classroom and business women as well. Um, I gave a keynote, keynote address at Melbourne University two weeks ago uh, for professional staff and they get 680 staff, and the, that university gave every single delegate a copy of the anthology Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. And I just, I just think that is a huge statement for a university to make for the way in which they want their staff, and they weren't teaching staff, it was all other professional staff, to engage with First Nations stories and people, um, and I, was really, I applaud that. 
Um, I get advances and royalties. We have, as you do, educational lending right and public lending right. So most of my educational lending right money comes from kids' novels and my public lending right comes from um, commercial women's fiction. I run writing workshops in schools, universities and at community level. I do author visits. I get um, a little bit of money each year from permissions and um, photocopied material at universities through the copyright agency. I do very little freelance writing now because it just takes so much time and um, to, to research. I also have a proper job. Um, uh, I manage a, a philanthropic foundation part-time. What I wanted to do is I, I wanted to talk about how I engage students in the classroom when I want to talk to them about books and writing. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll go in the classroom and say, who wants to write? And you might be lucky and have half a dozen or more people, put kids put their hands up excited. They're all at the front of the room. And um, sometimes I get no hands at all. And then I'd have to try and make it sound like this really sexy, not sexy because they're school kids, but <laughs> really attractive option. And I go, well, what about if I told you I fly all around the world and sometimes up at the pointy end of the plane and so forth. And anyway, so what I, I thought, how am I going to do this? Because lots of schools get me because they need to have Aboriginal people in the classroom doing stuff right. So I wrote a rap that I wanted to share with you today. <laughs> Clearly I'm not a rapper, but here we go. It goes like this. I'm from the Wiradjuri Nation and without hesitation I pay my respects to the traditional owners of land and I thank my army for all that I am. I tell stories through literature, you'll soon get the picture, but I also hunt for kangaroo and turn it into yummy stew or sometimes I'll make a roux curry. But if I'm in a hurry I'll throw some roux in the wok with some bok choy, oh boy, I make a delicious roux stir fry, you should try. It's called culinary fusion, there's no delusion, all peoples do evolve, we have not dissolved because of colonisation or assimilation, it's called integration our diverse nation. And just so you know, I don't go walk about and I don't catch trout. I drive a silver sports car. It's the best by far. Sunroof and leather seats, it can't be beat. When the roof goes down, I go brown, but I don't get burnt because I have learnt that sun cancer is not cool. <laughs> and yes, we can get sun cancer. I've done the research. Um, <laughs> I'm no fool. It's not cool. I'm no fool. I went to uni and graduated with a PhD in a fancy hat and robe without the strobe lighting. I had snow white hair then. It was frightening. <laughs> Apparently blondes have more fun, ladies. I nearly bleached the hair out of my head and I didn't get a date. There you go. I <laughs> uh, look like a clown. It's much more normal brown. I don't tell time by the sun. Unlike some, I wear a nice watch and I don't drink scotch. I don't wear ochre and I don't throw a spear and I don't drink beer. I love going to the beach and into the classroom to teach Indigenous studies for my students are my buddies. And I tell them about Aboriginal life in Sydney town. And although my skin is brown, they shouldn't frown because we're all the same. I want to tell you about my writing. How exciting, I hear you say. So, with no delay, I wrote a book called Token Koori. Some call it poetry. I call it social observations, my own translations of conversations with whitefellas and me. It's about being invisible, about racism being divisible. It's about pride and identity, what it means to be me. It's about reconciliation, survival of the Aboriginal nation and my own self-determination. It's about defining who we are, which is by far something others have done too much in a rush to make us different. But a name can make us all the same. And that name is what name can make us all the same? Oh, come on. <laughs> Human. Who said humanity? Okay, I'll give you a book at the one second, right? Okay. It's about being lonely if only I had someone to love. But don't fret, because I bet I just need to look. In the meantime, here's my next book. <laughs> now, this is a serious book. Uh, I wrote a book 
I've got to where I'm lost. I wrote a story about Mary Talents on a young Aboriginal girl who not by chance had a life of misdirection under the act of protection. She was one of the stolen generations without explanations, her identity and family taken. Fears awakened. She grew up in a place called Bomaderry, which wasn't like life with her own family. She was fostered by the Burks, her new brother Sam was a jerk, but she made friends with Tony and Dot and that meant a lot. A cruel boy, Johnny Jones, called her names and she had no games, but she could sing and she could play the guitar and then got her far in dealing with life of not being white. Mary Talents was a strong girl in the white world. She asked at, she asked at, at 10, she asked, oh, sorry, sorry, trying to do this. At only 10, she asked, who am I? Mary's life is no life, and my grandmother too was taken. Be not mistaken, you need to read, for although books don't bleed, hearts do when broken. A book could mean my mum. It's for some who can't read well, it's for who, but who can tell pictures from words. It's not absurd, but it is if you can't read. So plant the seed that books are deadly and be ready to read and have fun. Fuluyala is a Wiradjuri phrase meaning to talk straight. Some say this is a great book about writing. I'm not skiting, just trying to rhyme and stick to time. It's my PhD <laughs> thesis turned into a book. Maybe you could take a look. I penned... <laughs> So we all know that we're not, we don't have a problem with the phrase, I'm not racist, but that phrase is fine. It's what follows. <laughs> I penned a book called I'm not racist, but it has words that look like I'm in a rut, but it is a common phrase that often pains my days. And so 15 years and thousands of miles and fake smiles caused me to write words on pages to deal with my rages of those who are racist and blind to the niceness in mankind and how we all essentially just want to live in peace. I wrote a book called Yira and a Deadly Dog Demon. It's about a husky who spent... Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. We've lost Demon and I gave you the wrong PowerPoint. It's all good. Have you heard of Bridget Jones? Have you heard of Carrie Bradshaw? So I'm Corey Bradshaw. So Corey is a generic term for an Aboriginal person on, in uh, New South Wales. So my novel... Oh, we go back here. My novel, Not Meeting Mr. Wright, is about the fight to find a man if Alice Agner can. She's a little like Bridget Jones and doesn't want to be alone. And I wrote this book about dating, about finding love, not hating, as I listen to sad songs and write about my Mr. Wrongs. I'm happy for the novel's narrator, though she doesn't marry an ice skater. She does find love, and like a silk glove, it fits. In Avoiding Mr. Wright, I wrote about a woman called Peter. I really think you should meet her. She moves to Melbourne following a dream, and there's also great shopping ladies, if you know what I mean. <laughs> she's not looking for a husband or a man. She's going to escape one if she can and set up the new department of Aboriginal Affairs. Politics and policy is where she puts her cares, but in no time at all she's in for shock when she meets Mike, the local cop. She thinks it's like a Nazi dating a Jew, but interracial relationships is certainly not new. But Peter finds herself in a terrible bind because she does not believe that love should be blind. Unlike Lauren Lucas in Manhattan Dreaming, set in New York where the summer is steaming, where Native American and Aboriginal art meets, Lauren's job at the Smithsonian is no mean feat. She loves shopping and people and mostly cheesecake. Manhattan's a great place for her to escape. Lauren is young, talented and with a gift, but she gets claustrophobic in every lift. We follow her from Canberra to the US of A and we walk in her footsteps every day. Then we go to Paris. In Paris Dreaming, we travel with Libby Cutmore. She goes to Paris and shops and eats galore. Libs works at the famed MQB before doing Indigenous arts at the Australian Embassy. She makes friends with Romanian afraid of deportation and she hates the French banning the Burqa legislation. Libby is busy and has no time for love, but when the right one comes along, it's a sign from above. 
As you can imagine, researching in Paris for me was a chore. <laughs> it's all a tax deduction. Uh, we're eating croissants and macarons is almost the law. With my, late, or with my memoir, Am I Black Enough for You?, the aim was to break down a stereotype or two. It focuses on the strong women and role models in my life. It says you can have purpose, though not a mother or wife. It challenges expectations placed on couriers every day. It's about an identity they cannot take away. And basically, that's my life as an urban-based writer. My days at my desk or researching could be no brighter. I'm awake by six on the go by seven. By 9am, I'm in writer's heaven. I check Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and I organise my space, my office, overlooking... That beautiful mural is my own sacred place. Sometimes I run along the river or the beach or I sit and I stare and the words in my deadline are my only care. Sometimes I worry I don't have the right word. Hearing this, you might think I'm a nerd. But truly, I love what I do because being a writer today has brought me to you. Thank you. So lots of writers, um, and then we get the kids and they write their own little raps and we do, right. Um, lots of writers don't want to disclose, you know, numbers and so forth, but I thought, I think it's useful to people for people who are wanting to be a writer, be a full-time writer, you know, get into the marketplace, to know your market. So um, I've published across genres, except, uh, and except for my most recent work that I edited, which is Growing Up Aboriginal Australia, fiction far out, far out sells non-fiction um, always. Uh, I made a conscious decision to move into commercial fiction because, in short, I wanted people to read my books. I wanted women particularly. I wanted to, I wanted to engage Australian women readers particularly. Um, to, I wanted them to connect with my characters and I wanted them to start to consider what makes us the same as women so that we could then celebrate talk about our diversity and our difference. I wanted the biggest possible audience to start thinking about issues that are important to me as a sovereign Wiradjuri woman, as an Australian woman, and as a woman who is a member of a global village. Uh, these are the numbers. These numbers, again, are, of course, I come from a country of 30 million, and, and they're quite good numbers in Australia. My kids' novel, The Woman Mary Talents, has been translated into four languages, and that's, that came out in 2001, and it's still being taught in schools now because there's not, a lot, there's not a lot of material for young people to learn about a history, the history of young Australians who, just like them at the same age a century ago, had a completely different life. And it's really... I go into lots of private schools where you know, kids really nurtured kids and supported kids, which is great, have no concept of what life is like outside their safe home. And I've had teachers say, oh, do you think it's a bit young for primary kids to learn about the stolen generations? Like, well, no, it was primary school kids that were taken. Mm -hmm. And it's how, it's how the stories are told. There are ways to teach history that are, um, you know, appropriate. So the reality is that stats show that women are the largest buyers of books and they read fiction. In fact, there's a quote we discussed at the Byron Bay Writers' Festival in August this year, and we're discussing it again at the Feminist Writers' Festival in Sydney in November. And Ian McEwan said, when women stop reading, the novel will be dead. And I think the statistic that was thrown up um, at Byron was about 80% of novels are read by, uh, purchased or, and or read by women. So my agent told me this week, I emailed her, I'm doing this keynote, give me some information, please. She says, everything is cyclical. Right now, memoir is tough, but a few, year, a few years ago, it was the big thing. Now it's personal development. 
Sarah Knight, Mark Manson and uh, Scott Pape's book Barefoot Investor has been uh, number one for nearly two years and is selling more than a year ago at about 10,000 copies a week. I must I feel like I'm the only person in Australia who hasn't bought this book. Um, she said, these sales reflect where people's heads are at. Mostly women buy books, um, yes, with the fiction books, the most popular at the moment are uplit authors. So I got this off HarperCollins Australia site. Um, and authors such as Gail Honeyman, who wrote Eleanor Oliphant. Commercial women's authors that big in Australia include Leanne, Leanne, Leanne Moriarty, uh, and crime writing by Jane Harper. Uh, Chris Hammer's Scrublands is very popular as well. Our biggest selling days are um, Christmas, Father's Day, and Mother's Day, and I'm assuming that's exactly the same in I'll go back exactly the same here in New Zealand. And I'm just going to throw a couple of extra stats about New Zealand into last night's mix, mix by Chris. So I'm told that in terms of New Zealand, the publishers are printing 1,000 for a New, New Zealand novel and only two to 3,000 for the very well-established authors. Publishers are using just-in-time technology to respond to demand once the book gets out and gets reviewed. Poetry, a print run for poetry is about 300. And same for non-fiction. Um, print runs, obviously the, the market is small here. A rugby biography might sell 40K, so you still got time. <laughs> still got time. Um, my cousin used to play for the Wallabies, so I just want to say that too. Um, my suggestion for you as writers, emerging writers or wannabe writers, is to know your market. Um, I meet people who go, oh yeah, I don't care if anybody reads my work. I go, you're lying. You are you are a liar. Um, so what I learned late, if you want, I mean, if you want to crack the market at all, what I learned late in my career is it's not publishers who decide whether your book will be published. They might love your book, they might champion your book, but they take that book into an acquisitions meeting and the sales team will say, oh, we can't sell that. We sold two of those last summer. Or the market's flooded on books on happiness. I want to do this project on happiness. And I got told by publishers who are friends of mine, oh, we've gone through the happiness tunnel, Anita. But if you want to write a book on trauma... <laughs> and I burst into tears. Like, I don't want to write an effing book on trauma. Like, I want to write a book for people who are traumatised to be happy. Anyway, so... Uh, it's still a business, whether it's a boutique publisher or not. It, it, it's a business. There's not enough brown people to sustain a publishing industry, so people need to be buying... Everyone needs to buy our books and so forth. So know your, know your audience. Know what's in the marketplace. Go to the library. Go to the bookshop. Have a look what's there. Find the gap. Find the niche. So the essential ingredients I wanted to share with you before I sit down to being a successful writer, aside from actually writing your book... Uh, engage in social media. Um, we, I, I would, I was, I'm expecting to see the hashtag NZ Writers Forum um, trending on Twitter this weekend. So get on there, do your tweets, retweet everybody so that when it comes up in their top ten on Twitter today or tomorrow, people are going, oh, what's this NZ Writers Forum? And then they're going, then they follow, they'll follow the hashtag. Um, I, use, I use Twitter to engage with my readers who, can't, who live all around the world who can't be at events but they can follow the hashtag like today and feel like they're virtually there. And I think it's a great way to follow all, your, follow all the booksellers and follow the publishers and share information and links and be part of the conversation, be part of the industry that you want support from, support other authors, support, be in your book clubs, join your book clubs and so forth and be on social media and be social, be social. 
uh, attend festivals like you are, suck as much information out of every single author as you can, like I did. Um, and, um, you know, I listened, I was, had a session with Paula Morris yesterday and just listening to her talk to the students, I got ideas about what I need to do when I go to the library here during the week. Join your professional organisations um, and do professional um, development. And then keep writing. And I hope one day that I'm invited to every single one of your book launches. <laughs> and my final words are go well, write strong and be true to your writing self. Thank you. New Zealand Society of Authors, Tipune Kaituhi o Aotearoa, Pen NZ Incorporated, is the principal organisation representing writers in New Zealand. We want to continue to provide opportunities for you to grow in your professional development. That's why we've started NZSA Web Workshops. Visit our website, authors.org.nz, to find out about these opportunities. Experienced writers and teachers will lead them. We hope that they help you to grow as a writer and face whatever tomorrow brings. Our website again is authors.org.nz.